Hello, this is Anthony Day, and welcome to the Sustainable Futures podcast. This week, I was talking to the ISMM, the Institute of Sales and Marketing Management in Newcastle. My theme was sustainability sales. And I made the point that sustainability is not just a business issue, it's a consumer issue. It affects us all. And it's not just about climate change or global warming. It's about population and food and waste and water and energy as well. I explained how sustainability is firmly on the agenda of global investors and of major corporations around the world. And the pressures on them are being pushed down towards us, down the supply chain. Before we listen to what I said, let me tell you that in future episodes of this podcast, I'm going to talk about the warning from the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment in their recent report, where they're really concerned that a shortage of sustainability professionals will have a deleterious effect on British industry. And what about blackouts this winter? Well, probably not if it stays as mild as this October. But what happens if we get a really harsh winter? That and a number of other topical issues will be covered shortly. But for now, let's listen to what I said in Newcastle. So, sustainability sells. That's what I think. Is sustainability a business issue? Well, clearly, for a lot of you, it is. Or is it just something which is nice to do on Sunday afternoons and it's, uh, it's a hobby? Actually, I think it's very much a business issue, and I'm not alone. If you saw the papers last month, Asda said that 95% of their fresh food, which must be their meat and their fish and their vegetables and their fruit, 95% of all of that is threatened at risk from climate change. So that's very much a business issue for them. And obviously if it's for them, it's the same for Tesco and Morrisons and Sainsbury's and all the rest. That's an issue for us as well. Because while they're struggling to find things to fill their shelves at the right price when we want it, well, we are struggling perhaps to go and find what we want at the right time, at the right place. Well, climate change. What is climate change? And climate change, of course, is only part of sustainability. I mean, very crudely, climate change. The sun shines on the earth, tremendous amount of radiation and heat, and we have a layer of gases, the ozone layer and things like that, which fortunately keep a lot of it out, because without that, we'd fry. Most of the heat and light which is radiated onto the Earth reflects out again into space. But there's this layer of greenhouse gases, and they trap some of it within the atmosphere, and without them, we'd freeze. The problem, of course, is that if we build these greenhouse gases and that layer gets a bit thicker, then a bit more energy is retained, and things get warmer. That's global warming. And people say, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, we had a brilliant September, we've had a marvellous October, and what it's done for Whitley Bay is amazing. Yes, absolutely amazing. But the point is that it's not just warmth. Don't think of warmth, think of energy. It's energy going into the weather systems. It's energy driving exceptional winds. It's energy creating tornadoes and hurricanes. It's energy driving rainfall in massive amounts to places that aren't used to it and taking rainfall away from places that have always had it. It's changing the climate. And that's why it's an issue for people who are trying to sell food. Remember, this time last year, that's what climate change did. That's somewhere in this country. 
December last year, that's the Philippines, winds of 200 miles an hour. Now, we get a gale warning if it goes much over 45. 200 miles an hour. Utter devastation. And in Australia, the opposite is true. They've had so many extremely warm seasons that they now, and I'm not joking, they now have a different colour on their weather map because it's so frequently over 40 degrees C out there. And they have tremendous forest fires. They have droughts. And as far as agriculture is concerned, it's chaos. And then you may remember back in January there was a weather system which they called a polar vortex, which was completely unusual and unheard of. And what it did was cause a tremendous amount of unseasonal weather in the United States to start with. It made places which didn't get cold incredibly cold. And this, in fact, is a township called Hell. And even Hell froze over. But when the uh, system came over here, that's York, it always happens, but the point is we actually got a lot of rain. And while York always gets flooded and we can cope with it down there, the Somerset levels, remember in North Somerset, a wide, flat area of agricultural land was flooded, and it was flooded for months. And they had to rescue the cattle, they had to do something, they had to keep the cattle somewhere, they had to ship forage down from as far as up here. Farmers were driving it down to to keep these poor cattle alive. And while you've got water sitting over the Somerset levels, needless to say, you can't plant anything, you can't harvest anything, you can't fertilise anything. So if anybody was going to buy any agricultural produce from there, they have to look elsewhere. Climate change is only one aspect. Another aspect is population. There are 7 billion people in the world. 7 billion people. And it's growing. In 1800, there were 1 billion people. It didn't get to 2 billion worldwide until the 1920s. And then you get to the 19, to 1950, and there are 2.5 billion. And now we've got 7.2 billion, and it's <coughs> on its way to 9 billion or 10 billion in 2050. That's a screenshot from a thing called uh, Worldometers, and I took that on the 31st of December, so we could just look and see what a year looks like. At the end of last year, they reckoned there were that many, 7.2 billion people in the world, that there had been 138 million births in the year. Um, In a day, there's more births than that, but this was done at 9.14 in the morning, so it's about a quarter of a million births. And uh, those deaths, oh dear, that's... So the net population grew by 81 million, which is substantially more than the United Kingdom. It's bigger than Germany. It's a substantial number of people. It's growing. It's a lot of people. It's an awful lot of people. And if it grows to 9 billion in 2050, that's 30% more. And that, in turn, means we're going to need 30% more food and water and energy and resources, and we'll make 30% more waste. In principle, if everybody stays the same, if everybody stays in the same relative level of standard of living. But you've got the BRIC countries, which are Brazil and Russia and India and China, and coming up rapidly behind, or possibly even overtaking them, we've got the MINT countries, which is Mexico, Indonesia, Nigeria and Turkey. And they're all developing rapidly. They're developing and their aspirations are developing. So not only are they aiming to consume as they always did, their expectations 
of a Western diet, of a Western lifestyle, are actually increasing the burden on the planet out of proportion to the actual increase in numbers. So, will there be enough food? Which is a question which clearly Sainsbury's are, and all the rest are asking. Will we have enough land? Will we have the fuel to drive the machinery? Will we have the seed, the fertilizer, and the distribution systems? Will we have to be vegetarian? Because cattle are not a particularly efficient way of converting uh, food, or their food, into our food, if you see what I mean. Because cattle not just make meat, but they make bones and hooves and leather and other things that we can't eat. And the proportion of the inputs to outputs is pretty poor. If we ate the sort of grain that we feed cattle when they're shut up in the winter, we'd get far more food um, value out of it than eating the cattle that are fed on it. Will we go vegetarian? I don't think we will, but uh, I think meat's going to be more expensive. We're going to look at things like poultry, which are far more efficient, but two billion people in the world regularly eat other things like this. And I know there are people there saying, I couldn't possibly eat a spider. But if you look closely, it isn't a spider, it's a scorpion. And if you don't like that, well, that's apparently very nutritious. But looking at something which uh, you, you might be prepared to eat, cocoa beans, there is a finite supply, or at least it can't increase as quickly as demand. So your favourite snack may get smaller, or more expensive, or both. And then what about water? Will there be enough water? Sometimes we look out the window and we think it'll never stop. But in other places they have problems. This is the Aral Sea. Notable feature of the Aral Sea has not got any water. That is a man-made disaster. What happened was that the Soviets decided that they were going to grow cotton, and cotton needs an awful lot of water. So they diverted a river, and 80% of the Aral Sea dried up. So it shows there are conflicting demands for water, and some people lose out, like the fishermen in the Aral Sea. And then, of course, there's the um, Colorado River, which starts in Wyoming and Colorado and goes through Utah and uh, a bit of New, from New Mexico, Arizona, down to California, where it joins the sea. Except it doesn't. Because for three of the last five years, the Colorado River has dried up before it actually got to the ocean. Because as it travels down through all these states, people take water out for agriculture, they take water out for industry, they take water out for drinking, and finally, there's none left. California is in its third consecutive year of drought. Some people say that it's going to go on for the foreseeable future. Some people even say it's going to go on for the next 30 years. But um, until the Met Office gets its new £97 million supercomputer, we may not be certain of that. But it's serious. And in London, well, the thing about the southeast of England is they have a tremendous demand for water. When those fountains were put in, in the Victorian time, they took advantage of the fact that London sits on an artesian well, which basically means if you drill a hole in the right place, the water just shoots out. Fascinating. And so they put a fountain on top. But they've taken so much water out that it doesn't do that anymore. They have to pump it. They're talking about exporting water from outside the southeast because there is such a demand for water in the southeast. They're even talking about ex um, exporting it by pipeline from Scotland. And I'm quite sure that if it comes through Newcastle, we'll put a toll on it. Well, why not? And resources, metals and timber and minerals, a bigger population, higher expectations, a bigger demand. 
This is a gold mine. This is the Kalgoorlie Big Pit in Western Australia. It's one, of the, it's one of the biggest in the world. And there are mines like this, not just for gold, but for coal, and also for um, iron ore and things like that. And it's a big pit because if you can see these little things here, uh, they take 50 tonnes at a time. But it's an illustration of the fact that it's more and more difficult to get the materials that we need. If you've got a high-grade gold mine, then for each tonne of ore, which is about the size of a small car, you get 20 grams of gold, which is about probably quite smaller than that. And of course, these days, it doesn't come in convenient ingots. It comes as dust. So you've got to sort through a tonne of dust to get that much gold. And of course, you have to use these days all sorts of noxious chemicals and things like that to leach it out. Strangely, oh, I've put, put it away, but a mobile phone, a tonne of scrap mobile phones contains 340 grams of gold. A tonne of ore, 20 grams. A tonne of phones, 340 grams. But they're not built for recycling. You might be able to recover the gold, but if you did, you'd probably destroy the antimony and the titanium and all the other good things in it. We, we haven't built these things for, for recycling. And while we might pass them on and pass them down the family, eventually they either get left in a drawer or thrown into a landfill, and the material is gone into a tip, into a hole in the ground. But is there another way? Well, if we could reuse things, if we could perhaps remanufacture things and put them back into production, if we could redistribute things, and ultimately, if we could disassemble things so we can actually truly recycle, because we can get the component parts separate and put them back into the, into the system, then we would minimise what we had to take from virgin resources, we'd minimise what we had to dig out of the ground or grow, and we'd also minimise, bad news for the waste industry, minimise what went to landfill. So that's the circular economy, and as you'll see in a minute, it comes from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, and if you're interested in that sort of thing, our website is extensive and fascinating and many, many videos on it. I'm sure there are some people here who remember that we used, all of us, to rent our televisions. And if the television went wrong, there was a man in a van who brought a new one the same day. But that's something that we no longer do. But it shows it works. They mentioned energy. Will there be enough energy? Well, we have a dilemma as far as energy is concerned at the moment. Where do we get it from? A lot of people hate renewables. They don't want anything in their backyard and so on and so on. But if you look at the three criteria for energy, the, they are cost, security and pollution. Renewables are not necessarily very cheap, although costs are falling quite dramatically. Security, nobody can trap our wind. And pollution in operation, they don't make any pollution. You made the point. And that there is a whole life cycle. There's pollution in the manufacture, the erection and installation. But once they're running, they're totally clean. On the other hand, there's coal. Well, coal is quite cheap now because of the success of fracking in the United States. They're using natural gas and they are now exporting the coal that they were using uh, domestically. And do we want cheap energy or do we want clean energy? Do we want secure energy? 
Well, we all want cheap, don't we? So we're using more and more coal to produce our electricity. But it doesn't all come from the United States. The majority of it comes from Russia. So you can hardly say it's secure. And nuclear, well, the government is about to uh, sign a contract, I believe, for a new nuclear power station. But by 2020, all except one will be taken out of commission because they've come to the end of their lives. And it'll take 10 years to build a new one. So there's no quick fix on the nuclear front. But then what about gas? Well, there was um, a panic uh, last year. I think this, no, it was, yes, it was March of last year. This headline, Frozen Britain faces threat of gas rationing in two weeks because we don't have much in the way of gas storage. And the reason for that is that we were plugged into the North Sea with seemingly infinite supplies of gas, so why would we bother? But that's declining. And the um, minister said, but you don't need to worry because there's a ship on the way. And that alone has got enough for two days' supply for the whole of the UK. What he didn't say was that there's always a ship on the way. In fact, 15% last year of our gas came that way from Qatar, the well-known footballing nation in the Persian Gulf. Um, Persian Gulf, not a particularly stable or secure part of the world. Oh, well, we can all go for fracking, can't we? I mean, without going into a great deal of detail about fracking, I think that the government is going to have as much opposition to fracking as it's having to nuclear power. The activists are very active, and they come from all areas. Uh, you know, the, the, the beards and sandals through to the people who don't want to have uh, their views spoiled by these or by wind farms or anything else. So it's a dilemma. So looking at all these things, you can ask the question, what can I do? Or from a business point of view, you can say, well, what's in it for me? Why should I do anything and how should I do anything? At a personal level, you can be a good citizen and do things like reducing and reusing and recycling. If you reduce what you purchase, then you reduce the need for things to be manufactured. You reduce the need for energy to be used in the manufacturing process, in the extraction of the raw materials, and in the distribution of the product to your shop or your front door. If you reuse things, that, dis that, um, that defers the point at which you have to replace and buy something new. In fact, we're doing quite a lot of that already, because what's eBay if not a reuse centre? You can have something, you can get value out of it, and you can sell it on to somebody who's also getting value. And free cycle is another thing where you pass it on for nothing. And people are getting more and more value out of something before it's finally disposed of. Recycling is in the smallest print because recycling, we haven't really got it yet in this country. Recycling is downcycling into more inferior products, you know, paper into cardboard or egg boxes, bottles into glass insulation fibre. It, it's a stop on the way to the tip, but it's not actually going back into the process and round and round again, with a notable exception which I'll talk to you about in a minute. Businesses see this as an important thing to do. Why is Rolls-Royce doing this? Why is it saving 20,000 megawatt hours of energy? Because it saves money. Okay, it reduces the carbon footprint, and of course, as far as they're concerned, uh, their carbon footprint is taxable under the carbon reduction commitment. But there are two reasons. There are the commercial reasons, and because it's a good thing to do. Reuse. Well, you know, at, at the individual level, things like this. 
You don't tend to reuse them. Oh, it's run out. Do you throw it in the bin? Oh, it's too nice to throw in the bin. It'll stay in a drawer forever. It's refillable, but you try finding the refills in a shop. Nowhere. But you can find them on the net. So I refill my pen. Because uh, there's plastic, which has come from oil, which has been extracted from the earth. There's metal, which has been uh, dug up from a mine somewhere. There's energy in producing it. Throw all that away. And it's not just the metal and the plastic and so on. It's the energy as well, which is gone. At the other scale, of course, you could reuse buildings. The greenest building is a building that's already there. Isn't that fantastic? There's buildings younger than that that have been bulldozed and people have started again. But that's a building which has been reused, a new purpose. And recycle. Now, I must tell you about HP. You know, you, we all send our HP cartridges back to HP and the uh, toner cassettes. Since 1991, they have diverted 566 million cartridges from landfill. They take them in and they recycle them. Now, they don't actually remanufacture them. They don't believe that they can achieve sufficient quality. They actually separate the plastics, they crush them and they remix them and they start with a new batch of plastic. Since 2005, they've been using... <coughs> excuse me, they've been using drinks bottles adding that to the mix. They've used two and a half billion drinks bottles since 2005. And then they've discovered that these plastic hangers that you get in shops, well, where do they go? HP are now collecting those. And they only started that last year. They have already processed 500 tonnes of scrap clothes hangers into parts for these cartridges. Now that's recycling. That is a closed circle. Really, it's going round and round. And why do they do it? Well, the chief executive said, first of all, um, there is no such thing as business as usual. That's gone. She said, we do it because it's good. But she says, the amount of the carbon footprint that we've been able to reduce, the amount of our energy that we've been able to reduce, makes business sense. So there are a number of major corporations out there that think that sustainable business is good business. And the Olympics was a case in point. That was, uh, as a construction project, it was the greenest Olympics. They said that it was going to be the greenest Olympics ever, and it was. And actually in use, with minimising food miles, encouraging people to come by public transport, using natural light wherever possible, rainwater harvesting, and um, uh, solar energy and so on, it ticked all the boxes. To the extent that there is now a, an international standard, and that's based on what they did at the uh, Olympic Park. There are three drivers, I think, fundamentally, that drive every business. They drive your business and they drive your customer's business. And the three are, first of all, revenue and returns. So if we look at this company, which is TC Industries, which is only just down the road in uh, Saltburn, they have got ISO 14001. And why do they do it? They do it because of customer expectations, but they do it because it's a methodology which helps them save money. So that's a business reason. That's a perfectly respectable business reason. And then there are the regulations. There are lots of regulations. This magazine here is the uh, monthly journal of the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment. And every month we have a double-page spread of new regulations, latest consultations, new guidance on the built environment, on water, on energy, on finance, on hazardous substances, on marine, 
on reservoirs, on water reuse. There is a tremendous minefield out there. An awful lot of regulations which are going on and on. And ignorance of the law is no excuse. But then there is reputation, which I think is the third customer driver. CDP, the Carbon Disclosure Project. The Carbon Disclosure Project is a federation, or it's, it's supported by, uh, 700-odd international investment companies. And they have $90 trillion worth of assets under management. $90 trillion. Just to put that in context, the annual GDP of the UK is $2.5 trillion. Of the United States, it's $16.8 trillion. They manage $90 trillion worth of assets. So they have a certain amount of clout. And they go to the 5,000 largest companies in the world and they say, what are you doing about carbon emissions? What are you doing about climate change? What are you doing to ensure that our investments are safe? And if people come back and they don't give a, a sensible answer, they're named and shamed. It's all on the website. It's all in their reports. So that's the 5,000 biggest companies. But of course, the 5,000 biggest companies, well, all the companies, are dependent on their supply chain. And we're all probably in their supply chain somewhere. And so the CDP is actually focusing on the supply chain. And this pressure to be sustainable, to be environmentally responsible, is feeding down and down. And we're going to get asked questions, and we're going to be asked to show that we are credible. Otherwise, if the people next door can do it better, or at least can show they can do it more responsibly, then they may take the business. As I said, it's difficult to keep up to date because things are coming out all the time. But as a sales professional, if you keep up to date with the regulations and the issues that are affecting your particular clients, then you can become a respected business partner. And in fact, you can become the strongest link in the supply chain if you can help them be sustainable, provide them with expertise, and be recognized as a true solution provider. And I think if you, uh, uh, if you adopt sustainability, you shouldn't keep quiet about it. Uh, Marks and Spencers don't. Plan A. They make a lot of fuss about it. If you can do things which actually save you money or even make you money and they're environmentally responsible, why not let the world know? Because I firmly believe that sustainable business is good business and therefore sustainability sells. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Futures podcast. I'm Anthony Day. Future episodes will cover how sustainability affects us in our businesses and at home. I hope you'll join me.